0: you're listening to everyday creative people i'm your host dina adrians and this podcast is for the doers dreamers and makers of the world for anyone who wishes they had more time and freedom to play struggles with creative blocks or who's trying to figure out how to make a living while making art i'm here to stumble through the madness by your side once you finish listening to today's show please take a moment to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast leave a comment and tell a friend it will really help me out you can also join the community over in the Creative Playground Facebook group after the show and find all the show notes at dinaadriance.com slash ECPPodcast. Now settle in, get comfy, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Claire McNamara. She is a mezzo-soprano based in Boston, um, oratorio soloist, choral artist, and chamber musician. Um, She has sung with ensembles such as the Skylark Vocal Ensemble, Lorelei, am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you are. Lorelei Ensemble, Cut Circle, Handel and Hayden. Also, am I pronouncing their names right? Handel and Hayden. Handel and Hayden. Hayden. I don't. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, And the Boston Camerata. So, yeah, this is my first attempt at introducing my guest before she introduces herself. And this is how this goes (laughs) learning in progress. Congratulations. Um, (laughs) Fun fact about Claire is that she and I actually sang in choir together in high school. Uh, so it's super fun to be able to connect on the other end of life many years down the road. <laughs> and um, I, think, I think that's where I'm gonna leave it for your introduction for now. Is there anything else that you feel is really important that I'm missing, Claire?
1: No, I think that's great.
0: Awesome. Um, so Claire, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the
1: show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a real delight. Awesome.
0: So. Let's get started. If you can tell me um, just kind of a a brief overview of your uh, artistic, creative journey, if you will.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, let's see Uh, a brief overview. Um, I came to what I'm doing a little bit on the later side. So I always loved singing and I didn't find myself going to graduate school until I was almost 27. And now I'm in my early 30s and have a career similar to people who have been tracking for this for most of their young adult lives. Mm. Um, So it's been a crash course of getting acclimated to what it means to lead a more artistic life. Um, And so my perspective on it is slightly different than than somebody who has wanted to do this since they were an early teenager yeah um, or different from somebody who went to high school for the arts or different from somebody who went to conservatory in their undergrad um and it's not the most realistic thing to decide to do in your late 20s and that's where I'm just <laughs> going to leave that right there um, but uh, but in terms of what I do your introduction was was very apt um I guess within the past 10 to 15 years it's become more of a thing professionally to be able to knit your life together freelance style um, across everything from solo work as a singer as a classically trained singer um, as well as choral work and there's a lot of professional choral ensembles that have really come into their own in the last 10 years or so and it's much more feasible to live a life like that where i travel around the country um, in some cases, and in some cases overseas, to knit together my life um, as a freelance musician.
0: Hmm. So, you mentioned that you know this is something that you sort of came to in your in your late twenties in terms of a professional life. Um, one little fact that I left off of your introduction was that your very first job was at NASA. Um, so can you can you tell us a little <laughs> bit more about like what was your original plan when you when you finished college?
1: Uh, yeah, my or when my you were original, going through college, <laughs> my original plan was um, most of the time through high school was to go into engineering, and I had done a couple of summer programs. I went to Governor's School in Virginia and. Did the special NASA program that Governor's School offered, um, where I was at the NASA Langley Research Center. And I had great mentors while I was there and did some really neat research on the composition of fuel for hypersonic flight, <laughs> of all things, huh. where I was standing there, you know, turning knobs on. Um, turning knobs, regulating quantities of oxygen versus nitrogen versus other combustants coming into the mix. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so I was really excited about pursuing engineering and um, got to college and rather quickly realized that this just wasn't where I saw my life going um, Mm. for a a variety of different reasons. but it wasn't sort of where I saw my emotional core being. I looked at the other engineering students and I was not like them at all. Um, that doesn't mean hmm. that one has to conform to be an engineer, but it certainly makes things a little bit easier if you get really, really, really excited about all of your engineering courses, which I really wasn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was spending hmm. most of my time in the music department and I'd always had a lot of interests and a lot of things that, um, a lot of directions I could have gone in. And the two things that I was always the most excited about were music and science. So that had always been set up as a dichotomy. Um, but I had never been encouraged to think of the music as a viable future plan. It was always brought up in conversation with my family as something that would be great to do on the side um, and to keep my, my foot in the water for that. But it's just not something that I could really build a future on. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I believed that pretty much hook, line, and sinker for most of most of high school and certainly well into college. Um, but I hit this crisis point in my junior year. Um, at that point, I'd already actually left engineering. I had switched into molecular biology, of all things, because <laughs> part, part of the reason being it had more women in it. And mm-hmm. it was a friendlier place to do science. Um, and I really did like biology, so that was also enjoyable. Um, but again, I did not see myself being like the other students. I didn't want a future where I was standing in a lab working with small microscopic quantities of whatever I've used in my micro pipette that earlier that day. Um, and I had always considered maybe going to graduate school for music. And But at that point, I was also facing the reality of very few graduate schools will take people who don't already have an undergraduate degree in music. Um, so that was, I got to this this juncture and I was pretty unhappy and um, I remember calling my mother up one day and she said, well, would your life be better if you were just finally a music major? Is this just something you need to do? Hmm. And I thought about it and I said, actually, no, that would really solve things. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would really make a huge difference in my life. And that's exactly what I what I want to do. And on some level I just needed approval to do that because it's not it's a scary path to take, and we'll get into that I'm sure. Um but I really just needed to know that it was okay to want this thing and to want mm. this incredibly impractical thing with very little chance <laughs> of future success. Um and but then the reality of that also sunk in again. And there was the sense of, okay, well, I want to do this and I have some basic skill sets, but how do I get all the skill sets? And so I backtracked again and I said, well, if I work in arts administration, I'll be okay. That's close enough Mm -hmm. to art. Um,
0: Oh, I know that. Right, (laughs) right.
1: So, uh, and that's how I worked my first couple of years, sort of in the music business. I moved up to Boston and had a unpaid internship working for Boston Lyric Opera as their education intern for a year. And I loved it. And Mm. that helped me get wonderful recommendations to get a job working for the Handel and Haydn Society, also on the admin side, writing some grants. But that happened to be 2008. And so the financial crisis rippled its way through the arts world in a really unfortunate fashion that year. And that affected lots of donations. And that affected a lot of organizations that simply had to close their doors at that time period um and then it really started occurring to me as well that i i'm not well suited to writing grants that's just not my thing (laughs) i i'm so much of a nerd about music that i have a hard time talking about anything other than music in order to solicit month, funny, I'm uh, mm. sorry, funny, <laughs> in order to <laughs> solicit funds. Um, and so at that point too, it was just like, you know what, I need to find a way to be on the stage, not the person holding the door open behind stage for all the performers to go on. I mm. like really want to be up on stage and I don't know how to do it. Um, and in amongst that timeframe too, when I was doing the unpaid internship, I also ushered at Symphony Hall in Boston for minimum wage. And that was kind of an interesting window into the music world too. So I was, without realizing it, I was giving myself a lot of experience and all of the inner workings of being a musician without actually being a musician. Hmm. Um, and then I got to this next crisis point in my life where my college relationship fell apart and I was finally freer than I ever imagined in many ways and decided to go to graduate school for singing Let's see if there's even a place that will take me (laughs) at this point. Um, and one thing led to another. And just simply by already living in Boston and having a certain number of connections and having a good church job, um, I started getting hired for small things and then small things turned into bigger things. And so, you know, it's, it comes down to the old concept of you can have a certain amount of talent and you can have a certain amount of training and a certain amount of work ethic, but then you also have to be in the right place at the right time. Um, and that came together and and started forming the backbone of a pretty decent career. Um, hmm. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. i I um, I feel like a theme keeps coming up, uh, both in terms of the interviews I've been doing on this podcast and also like just in other conversations I've been having in life about um, how our career paths can sort of uh, take these twists and turns, but then sometimes, um there are sort of the the things that you've done you don't realize necessarily that they're leading you to where you need to Correct. be <laughs> and then suddenly you're there and suddenly you're there <laughs> um which is really cool when that when that happens um and and being sort of uh ready to walk through that door when it's when it's presented to absolutely you. and um, it's also
1: cultivating either the friendships or the inner Mm. knowledge or introspection to be able to recognize when that point has happened, (laughs) to recognize, hey, I've actually gotten to this place and it's much further along than I could have ever imagined and I'm much happier than I ever could have imagined with where I'm at. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the case of learning how to do that, I mean, my mom had to be the first person to make that move because i was so ingrained in this one way of thinking that i had to yeah. be this one thing and i needed someone so... to unstick me almost
0: mm, yeah it's so interesting because uh i think if i'm remembering correctly, what you were saying earlier um that you know it, there it sounded like there was um some resistance or or at least the message that you were getting from your family early on was like this is not a viable career path right. and that really kind of steered you and then at the same time your mom was the one who ultimately like enabled you to to move in this direction yeah. which is very cool Yeah, and
1: i think that was really quite freeing because and to be fair i mean it was sort of my father had this idea of me as an engineer and I think that was something that my mother was going to support as long as it seemed like it was good for me and it was getting to this point mm. where it didn't seem like it was good for me anymore. And what's the harm in encouraging this other side of me which clearly needed expression? Um, yeah. Because there comes a point where I think any any parent looks at their child and sees them unhappy and if they can literally do anything to make them feel better, they will. Um, <laughs> and that was, that was kind of the crisis point that I was at. And um, I think in many ways, not to get overly dramatic, but I think that decision partially saved my life or at least my sanity at that point in time hmm. where-
0: Yeah, it sounded like you were really kind of feeling very torn. Yeah,
1: it was, it was quite bad. Um, and there were some other complicating factors and school was very high pressure. And, um, and I'm also happy to speak on that, but really I think this is more about the artistic side of things. And it, it just needed, I needed to know that it wasn't going to somehow be a failure if I tried this thing where there was no guarantee of success.
0: Hmm. You needed to know that it wasn't yeah, going to be that, a failure that if you tried this thing, that right. there was no guarantee so of success. Hmm. It's simply
1: the, the attempt to do something would be seen as enough of a, a good thing whether it led to any future in that subject or not it was sort of the type of thing where i knew that i would regret it one day if i hadn't tried going down that path um Mm. yeah oh that's so i love that because uh
0: that i think so often we tend to think in these black and whites where um it's like oh what's the point of even doing that if i can't like there's no way i'm ever going to you know right. have a successful career in that you know in, in that path um and we sort of block ourselves um but you know the absence of success not is at all. not inherently and failure
1: I, so much about and and this was one of your questions and I'll, i could also wait for you to ask it um <laughs> but but the sort of the question of, of what it means to no, be no go right ahead and what it means to you to be an mm. artist or to me to be an artist and i kept thinking about this and i'm like i have no idea what it really means to be an artist aside from the fact that it seems like the artist's the artist's goal or, or the way that they structure their existence with their art is you come back to the same thing over and over and over again in multiple frames of mind on multiple days sometimes consecutive days sometimes for multiple hours on consecutive days and you do your art over and over and over again. And most of the time, it's not all that different. And sometimes it's very different. And it's in those very different moments that something really mm. special happens. And of course, along the way, the more time and effort you put into it, you're gonna get better, your baseline will improve. Um, but it's really about bringing mm-hmm. your mind and your body back to the same place, regardless of what happened earlier that day, Regardless of where you are in life. And sometimes that means that what happened to you that day will inform the work that you do. So if I had a really stressful day and I'm trying to sing, sometimes I can't get my breath underneath me. Um, but on the flip side of that, sometimes mm. songs that, that have a lamenting quality to them, I sing much better. <laughs> um, and, and that's really interesting because of course it's it's you're moving through emotion you're moving through life and it's this constant companion so there's no real goal it's it's a process thing and it's also about looking inward and seeing what you can do not really what you can do compared to other people but what you can do and it's tough when you're in a field that yeah. does constantly compare um, like singing or like you know professional writing and if you're trying to get a book deal and they only have so much money to give to one person, and there's like ten people writing really great books. Um, and then it gets tough. But the real act of doing art is, you know, you just keep putting it into the universe and see what happens. Um, so yeah, hmm.
0: yeah. So what was I going to ask you? Um, you were talking about. No worries. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I have a total brain fart. Um, (laughs) uh, So ah, I remember what it was. You were talking about um, the ways that your body is impacted by what's going on in your day and in your life. Um, And I find this so fascinating about the performing arts because they are so physical um that really there's uh there's a lot right. of different pieces that you have to sort of be taken care of and, and thinking of um but i'm curious you know when you so yes you know it is about the process and and yes um you uh, you know depending on what's going on in your day that will impact uh your ability to sort of right. do your art right um But what happens when you are doing this, you're getting paid to perform, right? And you've, you know, maybe had a really stressful day leading up to this performance, and you know that this is something that tends to impact your work. You know, how do you, um, what are the sort of rituals or practices that that you do, or how do you sort of get yourself from this stressful day into the place where you're ready to go on and and perform and do your best work despite all the other things that are going on.
1: Another in your really life. good question. Another question where I wish I had a specific answer for it. Um but it's mm. it's a bunch of things. The first thing that I know going into a situation like that is I do this so frequently and under so many different conditions that I have a baseline level of trust that my body will go through the motions and do the work. Um, which I didn't always have mm. especially not a few years ago because my my career has really only happened in about six years from start to finish I mean like from grad school to to where I am now is six <laughs> years um, and so to make that happen I did go on stage sometimes not being prepped not feeling good um, not being able to take a deep enough breath and now I'm at the point where I've my body is trained enough that on some level it will happen. It might not be the way that I want it to be, um, but it will, it will certainly be there in a way that I can now trust. So that's the first thing. There's just a baseline level of trust that I have with my body and my instrument and the understanding that it knows what to do under dire situations. Um, but beyond that, it's, you know, self-care is a huge thing in this job, and if that means that things are very stressful, say something is happening in my personal life, um, then you have to learn how to create these these cushions around you. If that means that you have to turn off your phone earlier in the day so that it doesn't bother you, um, I had a very high pressured gig back in December, and the entire week leading up to it, I logged out of my social media accounts. Um, I made it very clear that I really only wanted to talk about nice things. I <laughs> watched the silliest hallmark <laughs> things on Netflix that I could possibly get my hands on. Like I, I wouldn't even watch anything that would stress me out on top of what I was already experiencing. Um, so you you sort of experiment and you learn what you can handle and you have to be really honest mm-hmm. with your limits. And that took me many years. Um, I thought that I was gonna be more capable of having a gig, going out and partying with friends. And that turned out not to be the case. I actually need a lot of recovery time. I need a lot of alone time, maybe even more than some of my peers do. Mm. Um, and learning how to mm. live with that and to, to treat yourself in a way where you do prioritize your well-being in that performance place, um, even before you have a stressful day, so that you kind of can predict what the patterns are gonna be like. Um, I have some friends and they need yeah. to really energize themselves beforehand and I'm somebody who really needs to be soothed beforehand. So understanding what your style is with that, <laughs> whether you respond better to getting really jazzed up or whether you respond better to and, you know, listening yeah. to your favorite bouncy music on your headphones beforehand. I mean, I know people who do this and it's a really important <laughs> part of their their work. But for me, I need quiet calm. I need to get places early. Um, if I'm having a really tough day, I know that I'm going to want to get out of the house before rush hour even hits. If that means that I have an hour and a half to wait at the other end before before our warm-up rehearsal, before the mm. concert, I'll wait that extra hour and a half. That hour and a half is like sacred, nice, calm, fun time where I go and maybe I'll get some food or maybe a, a cup of tea or um, you know spend some time watching a silly show on Netflix on my phone, which is... Gosh, such a horrible habit, but a lovely thing to do when you travel a lot. Um, and so it's it, there. There, it's self knowledge is the primary thing with that. Um, and there's no one thing that I can think of that would automatically help people be there. Um, but I guess it's know what your thing could be. Yeah. Or know what your well, things like- are.
0: You know what's coming up for me is um, in the artist way. Julia Cameron talks about um, uh, sort of she talks about coddling your artist, right? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you know we feel like we shouldn't be uh, coddling ourselves, um, but that actually it's really important to coddle your artist, it's and very it sounds like that's yeah. exactly what you're sort of learning how to do.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. Even just, even if it puts you at risk of of seeming. Socially awkward at times. Um, Hmm. I think there are definitely times it's done that with me, but I don't regret it. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) there you have it. (laughs) Um, So, man, I have multiple questions coming up and I'm trying to decide where I want to go next. That's great. Um, So, uh, let's go in this direction first. So at this point in your life, am I correct that all of your income is coming through performance work? It is. Yep. It is. At this point. Um, and how long has it taken to get to that point?
1: Um this is one of the things where I've been incredibly lucky. So through grad school, I I had a church job that I was doing, um, and that provided extra sources of of little little extra sources of income mm-hmm. here and there. Um But I did, at that point, I did have family support, and I am an only child. So the sense of being able to have the space to really focus on this, whether it was entirely able to make me a full income or not, Mm -hmm. I knew that I had a certain amount of safety and support. And there were actually Mm -hmm. times where I really wanted to go out and get another job. And my mom's like, if you do that, I know you, you're gonna be really good at that other job, and then you're going to put this on the back burner because it's harder
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so i've been incredibly lucky that way and you know i I worked for a few years and i had savings and so i ate up all those savings and i'm at the point where (laughs) i have savings again because i've been i've been um on my own two feet for the past couple of years but things like health insurance are really hard and they're hard for all of my peers um Mm. to get I live in Massachusetts. To get good health insurance in Massachusetts is very expensive, even through even even through even the with
0: the Mass um, Mass Health.
1: Yep, even with that, um, and certainly because of my singing, I need to have access to an otolaryngologist, an ENT, to look at my ear, nose, throat. Mm. Um, if I ever have problems with my voice, that needs to be looked at. And that's right. expensive Priority. and the really good people who do that in town are literally some of the best in the world like have done surgery on um, on Julie Andrews of all things oh, um, but but uh. they are expensive and it's so having access to that automatically means that you're paying more yeah, um, yeah. so it's just mm. it's a it's a definitely a balance with that and I'm with the current political climate being what it is, and that is all I will say, um, <laughs> moving forward, that is that is definitely a concern as a freelancer in any field yeah. and yeah, in any state. Sure. Is how do you have those basic sources of stability? Like I make an income; it is not high. Um, what am I going to do in terms of retirement? Yeah. What am I going to do if I decide that I want to start building a family? And these are all questions that. Um, all of my peers right at the moment are also in the process of navigating. And a couple of babies have appeared in the last year among my friends. (laughs) I don't know how they happened. They just appeared. Um, No, a couple of babies have happened and and they're adorable and wonderful, but hands down, it's completely changed the fabric of my friends' lives, their financial capacity, and their ability to do their art. And all Mm -hmm. of that is very complicating and overwhelming, um, certainly within the landscape of what it means to be a woman in art. And that's, that's also a kind of tricky place to be in. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. So can you talk a little bit
0: about um, what it looks like for you as a as a classical singer? Sure. Uh, to have um, to be making your living entirely off of performance work? What does that look like?
1: Great. Um, so it means the times that I'm working, con- contract contracts, contracts are at any given time. Um, and I have maybe about, about, I'm just going to pick a ballpark figure of about five ensembles where I know that I'm going to get okay. most of the work from those ensembles for the year. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that forms the backbone of my season. And any one of these organizations can have, mm-hmm you know, say three to five performances of their own or three to five weeks of performance. Um, And so I will have contracts sort of on a weekly basis. Um, I sign contracts anywhere from six months to a year and a half out from the actual work that I'm doing. So the sense that what I'm doing is piecemeal is absolutely accurate but I'm already starting to see work offers that will take me through um, that will take me through the summer of
0: 2019.
1: Oh, that's so great. and and backing up even further, so I guess um, for for maximum clarity, most of the organizations that do this type of music um, they work on a season basis and a season sort of loosely maps itself onto an academic calendar. So it's September-ish mm-hmm. through May-ish. And then the summer months are usually kind of empty, um, in quotation marks, empty, because there are summer festivals and there are other other programs that happen during the summer um, that you can still work in, or you can choose not to work during that timeframe. But most people I know really have to work during the summer. So they have to find some sort of summer gig. Um, The same goes for church work. So if you're working a regular church job and singing every Sunday morning, either in a professional church choir or as uh, the professional section leader who's paid at a church. Um, and most people do that, no matter how good they get, it's, they, they'll still occasionally find themselves singing at a church, at least. Um, and that's for most Sundays. But again, most churches are sort of in season, September through May, June. Oh, interesting. So <laughs> it's, when you think of it that way, um, and it makes sense because people are traveling during the summer, so patrons sure. are traveling, so you can't have the same number of right. people showing up to a concert, and the Boston area where, what, a fifth of the population is students at the local universities, right. that really also changes the landscape of how you get around the city and who you can expect to be coming, um, Sure. and when you live further up north too, people people do strange things with when it comes to seasonal living. So um, one of my ensembles performs a lot on Cape Cod, but in the winter, a lot of the people who live on Cape Cod might go down to Florida. So that also mm. changes um, the demographic of who you can expect at your concerts. Um, yeah. So yeah, from a, on a any given month, say one, the first week of the month I would spend doing a concert with Handel and Haydn Society, and we perform at Boston Symphony Hall. And then the next week, um, say I'm on a contract with my group Skylark, and then we're traveling down to the Cape and doing performances on the South Shore of Boston, and then going up to the North Shore of Boston and doing a couple of concerts. And in order to facilitate rehearsals for that, I can't stay at home. It's too much commuting. So they'll actually put us up Mm -hmm. on the Cape for a few days. So to anyone else, it would seem like a paid vacation because I'm, I'm I'm... at Cape Cod in a, in somebody else's home overlooking the ocean with Martha's vineyard in the distance and then I have multiple hours of <laughs> rehearsal a day. So it's it's vacation E right. but then my body is being used for anywhere from you know 4 to 6 hours during the day. Um, yeah. yeah. And then say It's a little bit like
0: going on a on
1: a work retreat. It's it's kind of <laughs> like going on a work retreat and most of most of my work feels that way so Pretty much any day that I'm contracted, I can expect to be singing up to six hours a day, which is a lot. It's it's an awful lot on your body. That is a lot. Yeah, and and you you build up the stamina, and it's it's definitely a a process of acclimatization to that. You can't just jump into doing that. That's that's after years of being involved with that level of singing. Um, And I remember the first couple of gigs I had that like that. It just felt terrible. I'm like, oh, what am I doing? I'm losing my voice. Like, it's the day of the concert. What are... <laughs> how do I get my voice to function again? <laughs> um, so again, oh, it's, it's learning self-care. It's learning limits. It's learning what foods you can eat. It's learning how much sleep you need. Um, yeah. It's,
0: hmm. um, do you have any weird, like, concoctions that you take when you need to take care of your vocal cords? No,
1: I just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty basic when it comes to that. I've tried some strange things over the years, but really it's just, you know, hydrate as best as you can. Um, some people avoid dairy, but I really I, I like cheese. So um, <laughs> sometimes I'll eat that before going on stage, and priorities. it really doesn't bother me. Um, yeah, and just I'm really fluids and keeping as yeah. much humidity as possible, which is hard when you're on planes. It's such a low humidity environment, so I try not to travel the same day on a plane that I have to do a lot of singing. Um, and then if you get sick, you get sick. And there's, again, really not much you can do. You just try your best to move things through as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, zinc. I really like time tea when I'm sick, but I mean, I could, I could spend an entire like three hours talking about how you handle colds because I've literally had that much experience. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, <I'm> sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when you're relying on your body to, uh, yeah, it, it, To be in good shape. It it makes
1: you a little crazy. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, mm, what would you say have been your biggest struggles as an artist?
1: Let's see. Um, I think my biggest struggle, mm, I'm going to have to go with one of the primary artist struggles that most people. We'll talk about, but it's. I don't think that means it's any less important. Um, but the, the concern of whether you're going to be enough, whether you're going to be good enough, whether you're going to be, um, whether what you have is enough to make people happy, to let you keep doing your work, to encourage you to keep doing your work. Mm. And I don't have a solution for that. It's just it's just the way it is and for me that's manifested largely because I did get involved with this so late. Um, There's some skill sets that I really had to learn on the job that other people already had. And so it literally came from this position of feeling less than because I legitimately was less than (laughs) Um, and then learning how to not have that start to run my entire experience with my art. So learning how to have a more realistic Um, perception of my own abilities and set more realistic goals for my singing but also not sell myself short because I think it can be a very seductive thing to think, oh, I'm not enough so I don't deserve X, Y, and Z so either I should not risk trying to get X, Y, and Z or if I get X, Y, and Z, then I should be apologetic about it. And Mm. there's this, what I've really been trying to work with this past year is sort of like inhabiting the space that I'm actually at. Um, Can you talk more about that? uh, Yeah, it's, Hmm. Yeah. it's a little bit like owning your own abilities. Um, Hmm. For me, it means that when I go into a gig, I shouldn't automatically presume that I'm there because I was lucky to be there. It's the actually starting to believe that I did do a certain amount of work to get there and that work looks like this and it sounds pretty good. And I am more the equal of the person standing next to me rather than the inferior. Mm. And it's a small shift in mindset, but it means huge things for the overall product, I think. Um, mm. Viewing it more from a place of, of belonging there means that my singing is just better. Um, hmm. And so half of the battle is just convincing yourself that you belong. Um, yeah. And especially with my background and pinging around from, from job concept to job concept, um, it's, it's, that's been a large struggle for me to just kind of like say, no, I, I on some level I deserve to be here. Does anyone truly deserve great things? I don't know, but, but believing that there's a certain amount of, um, belonging helps me inhabit my own body in a way that mm-hmm. lets me connect better with my breath, better with the music that I'm doing, lets me have a clearer mind because I'm not worrying about, oh my gosh, if I do it this way, am I going to prove that I'm, I don't belong to be here? Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, mm-hmm. what is it? It has a it has a name. I can't remember the name. Um, where you feel like you don't, even if you're really 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 good at what you do, you feel like you don't actually imposter, imposter syndrome. syndrome. Thank you. Um, yep. <laughs> it's definitely an imposter syndrome. And the funny side of that is, of course, when you're when you're singing in lots of um, church choirs, or when you're around people who don't do this professionally. Um, so the professionals will always have an imposter syndrome, and then the um, the volunteers will always always have the pair to that which i think is the dunning kruger syndrome or dunning kruger effect where they feel like they're better than they actually are and it's always really funny to kind of have that tension in a room at the same time where all of the all the professionals are beating up on themselves and all of the the amateurs are just having way too much of a good time and it might not sound great but you know what their spirit is fantastic <laughs> and um and so i think there's something to be learned on both ends of that you know not to be overly critical <laughs> so funny. and to be yeah. a little bit more present. So I guess if I had to pick a couple of words for what I'm talking about, it's like learning to inhabit your own body mm-hmm. on a realistic level, but then also um, learning to be more present and learning to kind of go with the joy of the experience, learn a little bit from the amateurs that way. and get back to that place Hmm. and that's you know it's it's an ongoing struggle and i don't think that will ever go away but that's definitely the biggest thing that i've been dealing with in the past couple of years is you know having these moments where i suddenly realize oh i i do sound a lot better than i did three years ago oh how does that change me when i walk in through a door to do my work um Hmm. because it does so yeah yeah
0: yeah there's there's something about um just continuing to show up, you inherently right. get right. better.
1: <laughs> right. But then at some point, too, you have to make the mental shift to recognizing right. that that, that actually that. happened. Mm-hmm. So
0: Yeah. I remember, so uh, this past fall, you and I were working through the artist way together as part of my uh, creative playground Facebook group. And I remember having a conversation with you at one point about um, this idea of, of, Being an artist as a, as a classical singer, as somebody who performs other people's work. Right. um, And sort of that um, figuring out, I guess, what that means uh, in terms of like, can I claim the title of artist? Right. Um, I'm curious what you're at this point, um, sort of where are your thoughts around that? Has that evolved at all for you?
1: It's evolved a little bit. I think there are some days where, depending on how much automatic you're on, because again, going back to my schedule, if if I'm doing you know, two or three weeks, um, or at least three weeks a month, where I'm doing multiple hours of rehearsal a day, and I'm on someone else's clock, and the performances are gonna happen whether I want them to happen or not, um, there is. You always run the risk of, of a certain level of complacency and being on automatic with it. Um, Um, which isn't always a bad thing because sometimes you need that, as we discussed before. Sometimes it's good to know that you're just going to do the work. Um, so on some cases, it does feel like you're regurgitating, you're just recreating this, somebody's prior concept of music. And sometimes you work with an ensemble or with a conductor where they're just trying to make it sound like their previous CD. And that will make them happy enough. Um, and part of that is a simple budgetary constraint, too, because they only have the money to pay for a week's worth of performance or a week's worth mm. of rehearsal and performance. And so at that point, sometimes you literally get a week's worth of work <laughs> from people.
0: Right. <laughs> um,
1: and so you it, you can't always get to that that place where you really feel like you are creating something anew but i think the potential is always there and you can always work towards that potential given your place on any given day and Mm -hmm. i'm starting to recognize that a little bit more that no matter how many times someone might hear the same aria or sing the same piece of music there's always the potential that something different could happen especially in live performance and i'm starting to realize how grateful i am that so much of the performance I do is live. I mean, I I record a lot. It's fun to do recordings and then you kind of get stuck with where your voice was that day, Um, which can be really interesting too. I mean, I, I, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but just the sense of the potential always exists for you to create something that is uniquely you. Hmm. That only your voice can do this way or that only the overall product will sound a certain way when you do it. And yeah. um, I think sometimes it makes me a little sad, especially in the opera world, where they tend to hire the same types of voices to do the same roles over and over and over again. Mm. Um, it's called the Fach System, and it's it started in Germany, but it's kind of moved all the way across the opera world internationally, where if you're going to sing La Boheme, and you're gonna sing mm-hmm. the lead female role in that, they kind of expect all of the women to sound sort of alike for that. And everybody really? will be a little bit different because everybody has a, their own slight variations in tone color, but they want a voice of roughly the same weight and roughly the same styling. And if you don't sound enough like the conceived model of it, um, you, you might not get the work, even if your oh, version of it is valid and that's me really doing broad strokes it's not entirely fair to the fox system either because it does exist for for various reasons um but the concept remains that sometimes sometimes you can't your hands are tied as a creator of of this type of live performance when people already have a preconceived notion in their head of what it should sound like and that can be a little limiting where they want to hear only one type of sound and when they hear Mm -hmm. that sound then they'll know it's a good performance Mm. um but i think every singer has the potential to create something that does sound like them uniquely and for it to be compelling enough for other people to say oh wait a second maybe this piece can sound different and then it becomes much more creative but you're right it's 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 that's a little bit more of a struggle because i'm not sitting down and putting notes on a page I'm taking notes mm-hmm. off a page and translating them into experience for someone else um, yeah and that that's really cool i mean i can add my own facial expressions i can within reason of course <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's always filtered through whatever the conductor is doing and what have you but there there are there are ways to be very creative with it um yeah yeah and there's certainly the always the option for more of a passion project approach um doing a recital or what have you and i'm I am slated to do that in about a year. I have a uh, hmm. some funding to do that, which will be really exciting. Oh,
0: cool. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. So you mentioned a moment ago, you were talking about um, Getting stuck with how your voice was that day when you're recording something and you said oh, yes Oh, I'll talk more about that in a moment. What were you gonna say about that?
1: Um, so this past year as you know from our discussions with the artist way I was dealing with some personal health issues and of course the moment you're dealing with personal health issues as a singer you go to this terror place in your brain because It makes it harder for you to do your job Um, But in amongst all of this I had also gotten strep throat (laughs) (laughs) And I'd gotten it kind of at this really unfortunate time. I mean, it was very fortunate in the immediate timing of it, in that I had a couple weeks off where I actually had jury duty, (laughs) so I had jury duty and strep throat. Um, Try explaining that to a judge. But the recovery of that just, strep takes a long time to recover from, even if you catch it immediately. And especially if you're singing and you're singing multiple hours a day. I. It took me the better part of two months to really to really get over it and in that time frame i was contracted for a lot of work and i had two recording sessions that i was doing and i was recording some solo rep on that um and so when i listen to the solo recordings now i hear what sounds to my voice to be a slightly a slightly beleaguered instrument there's nothing objectively wrong mm. with it if i really try and step outside of myself it sounds beautiful but knowing me, I sound a little under the weather. But then mm. I also considered that actually it kind of works for the piece of music. So that's cool. <laughs> I mean, like there's, there was a fortuitous <laughs> moment there artistically where I was like, you know, nobody could quite sound like that because they don't have my voice and they didn't have strep that day, you know? <laughs> and it's there's, <laughs> So there's, there's definitely a, um, uh, a kind of interesting way of looking at it where, you know, recordings are really going to fix to fix that moment in time. And you can't forget yeah. them. And one of the things I love about performances, live performances, if I don't like the way I do it one day, I can always do it better the next day, or I always have the chance to do it better the next day. Yeah. Um, and mm. that's really lovely. And you know, this the, that particular recording is of a piece that I've performed. Oh, I have actually lost count of the number of times I've performed it, but it's been on the docket for this one group for five years or so. Wow! So to have a piece of music where I've had, it's become my friend. Um, Mm. And, you know, that was, that was me interacting with my friend on a day where I was a little under the weather.
0: (laughs) I love that way of looking at it. Yeah. That's great.
1: (laughs) But that doesn't make it any less valid. It's just, you know. Yeah. Mm,
0: That's cool. Okay. So we need to wrap up in just a few moments, but before we do that, can you tell me uh, what so first of all, where can we find you on the internet? And um, do you have anything coming up that people should keep an eye out for?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, on the internet, it is always best to look at my personal website, which is uh, Um, And I'm sure they can get the spelling of that off of your... Yes. That's fantastic. The podcast post. Um, and beyond that, it's just to keep looking at my website and look at the... I update my engagements pretty frequently, but also um, I I do it kind of on a season basis as well. So Mm. kind of every summer or so, I will update it for the following season and then you'll kind of have the whole list of events. Um, But I think in March, some of the things to look for are, hold on, just quickly pull that up. So at the beginning of March, I will actually be touring with uh, with the ensemble Lorelei um, which is a eight-voiced, nine-women ensemble. Um, so we'll do some, it's, it's eight singers and then our conductor, and she's also a singer, so she joins for some pieces. And um, the whole idea is to commission a lot of new works for female voices, for virtuosic female voices, because a lot of that doesn't exist. There isn't a ton of music out there mm. written for just women singing at a high level. Um, so the work that we do is really exciting and wonderful, and I'm very passionate about that um but we'll be doing a whole bunch of touring this season and um at that time frame we'll actually be at duke university and we'll be singing uh an opera that was composed for us which is really exciting so that's happening the first week of march so if you happen to be anywhere near duke (laughs) please come see us do our opera um and then after that um i'm doing the let me see i just want to get this this timing absolutely correct yeah then i'll be doing um bach's mass and b minor with the Handel and haydn society in boston at symphony hall and i'm really excited about that because i'm actually one of the soloists which is super yeah. cool <laughs> it's like a huge thing for me um so if you happen to be in boston around around easter you want to come hear the Bach Mass in B Minor. It's it's a life changing piece of music, but also I Mm. I I do feel pretty strongly about um, our performance of it, which is really quite lovely. Um, And I think this is the first time the organization has performed it since 2011 or something like that. Cool. So that'll be really cool. And then over Easter itself, I'm flying off to London with my group Skylark, and we're performing at a big choral festival in England hosted by the UK group Tenebrae, which is again a big deal in you know caps <laughs> um, so it'll it'll be really fun and so if anybody happens to be in London listening to this please go see those concerts all um, right. traveling
0: yeah. all over the place yeah traveling all over the
1: place so that that gives you also a representative sample of how how my month is structured um, and it's constantly flitting from one thing to the other and actually there's a lot of people in common across all of those concerts which is really funny mm. so
0: <laughs>
1: yeah it's a small group of people who does this nationally
0: that's so great well thank you so much for being on the show today Claire it's been lovely chatting you're with you're
1: welcome you. you're welcome and I really appreciate this and I hope that I hope that I've been remotely cogent <laughs> you <laughs> totally have so yeah <laughs> all
0: right thank you thank you so much for listening to everyday creative people If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast, leave a comment, and tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook at Dina Adriance Coaching and join the community over in the Creative Playground Facebook group. I'd love to hear from you. See you again next Monday. Same bat time, same bat channel.